As our world continues to accelerate all things digital, we are seeing a greater emphasis from organizations on the productization of data. And while data scientists undoubtedly have a role to play, the commercialization of data will require thoughtful consideration on the various skill sets and strategies necessary for success. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Tease. And on this episode of If When, our topic was data products, with an emphasis on an emerging new role, the data product manager. My guest for this episode is Dr. Tom Davenport, Distinguished Professor of Information Technology and Management at Babson College, Visiting Professor at Oxford Business School, Fellow of the MIT Digital Economy Initiative, and Senior Advisor to Deloitte's AI Practice. Tom's many accolades include authoring 23 books and over 300 articles for Harvard Business Review and many other publications, being named one of the world's top 25 consultants, one of the top three business technology analysts, one of the 100 most influential people in the IT industry, and one of the top 50 business school professors in the world. Well, Tom, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I'm looking forward to talking with you about data products and uh, data product strategy as a component of some of the emerging technology you know, that we're seeing in data analytics and artificial intelligence and whatnot. Now, you know, I've been looking at, at some of your, your recent papers and research. You've been doing work for like AWS and publishing stuff, of course, as you you always do on the MIT and, and Harvard Business Review. And you've been talking about, I think recently, like within the last month or two, pieces I've seen have been around data product strategy. And uh, can, you, can you start us off? Can you describe a little bit, you know, what a data product strategy is? Sure. Well, I guess I should first say what a data product is. And there's a little bit of maybe not controversy, but disagreement about that topic. I always thought of data products as the combination of data and the tools that you need to accomplish something specific with it, which usually turns out to be analytics and AI, you know, the ways we make sense of data. But there are some people and organizations that argue a data product is just the data itself, and they might refer to an analytics product or an AI product. But to me, you know, data by itself isn't terribly useful. So I like the idea of a data product being both the data that you're using and the tools that you need to make sense of it or get some value out of it. Mm-hmm. And then so a data product strategy is things like which data products are you going to develop? What is the business purpose of them? Who's going to do it? What are the different capabilities that you have to have as an organization, including Mm -hmm. data product managers, which I think we'll talk about at some point. You know, there are a number of other groups that are necessary to make data products ultimately successful. So that's a big issue. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think those are the basic things. There aren't that many companies yet who have data product strategies because a lot of people are saying, okay, we're going to decide on what analytics or AI use cases we're going to develop and we're just going to call them data products. But I do think that just as companies who produce 
things for their mm -hmm. customers have product strategies, it makes sense to have data product strategies. So it's really, I mean, it, it sounds like, and, and I hope I'm not off base here, but it sounds like it's kind of productizing context and being able to look across and, and creating kind of a more holistic solution. So like you have the data, you have all the raw data, and then, you know, you're making sense of it, but then applying that, that sense that's being made and then productizing that and selling that to the market. Is that fair? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Except that it may not be sold externally. It might just be for an internal purpose. Those are often called data products too. So hmm, okay. you know, maybe I want to do a better job of assessing my risk mm -hmm. under certain circumstances. So you could have a, you know, a risk oriented data product, or you could have a marketing data product to produce recommendations or some companies I've worked with have created these next best action mm -hmm. data products. So I think when data products were initially discussed, it was in digital native companies, mostly in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And for them, it was typically, you know, something that you take to customers and sell or at least give away with the intention of getting eyeballs and selling something else. Mm -hmm. But within legacy companies, it could be just an internal application or something for customers. Hmm. Now, I think, you know, so in concert with this, you know, we're seeing the rise of the chief data officer. Um, and it's a fairly recent phenomenon among the C-suite. I think within the last 20 years, I think is what I had seen. And I know largely, or I suspect largely, really was emergent in like the financial sector. Because there's a lot of, you know, anti-money laundering and data privacy and a lot of things where data just naturally lent itself to uh, the risk of the institution. And so they were looking at it. The board was like kind of demanding greater governance over data. Anyway, that said, um, you recently authored a report for AWS on chief data officers and prioritizing business value creation. Now, how do you see data products folding into the efforts of the CDOs to create value for their organizations? Yeah, well, uh, I think a key element of creating value in general, it's hard being a chief data officer if you don't have responsibility for analytics and AI and even business intelligence mm -hmm. is a tough job because... Data is kind of an abstraction to many people. They don't fully understand what's right or wrong about it, how to make it better, et cetera. So many chief data officers have become chief data and analytics officers. They've taken responsibility for both the supply of data, but also the demand in terms of analytics and AI and business intelligence to you know make sense of it and use it in the in the business, the problem has been that we started out, I wrote an article about a decade ago with a person who ended up being the first chief data scientist of the United States, DJ Patil, hmm. in Harvard Business Review. And nobody remembers the title of that article, but they remember the subtitle. It was called Data Scientist, colon, Sexiest Job of the 21st Century. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And the problem is, I don't know, maybe we created a little bit of a monster, but the problem is companies thought, well, okay, I'll put data scientists in charge of the whole process mm -hmm. of 
producing valuable things with analytics and AI. And it turns out many of those data scientists aren't really interested in anything but creating a great model. You know, mm -hmm. they love the manipulating the numbers and the and the models in order to get high area under the curve uh, percentages and so on. And so many of those models just never got deployed in organizations. And there were various surveys about the percentage of models that got deployed, you know, 13% in one study. Some of the companies I've talked to said, we never deploy any of them. <laughs> we create them, but they never get deployed. Hmm. So data products obviously don't work if you're not deploying something. It's kind of like you came up with an idea for a new product, but you never, a new form of toothpaste, but you never introduced it to any customers. So you never got any value. And that was the problem in the data science space. Hmm. So pretty critical, I think, for chief data officers, if hmm. they're going to get value, to take an approach that says, okay, we're going to fully deploy this model into production and we're going to get economic value and we're going to even monitor it over time in case the model, you know, drifts or doesn't predict as well anymore. And all of those things, I mean, not every uh, chief data officer has embraced this idea or chief data and analytics officer, but I think in our survey, 39% said they were working with data products and were moving toward using data product managers. Hmm. Mm, that's interesting. You know, and I, I can't help but think that there's, it's somewhat analogous in some ways with like, a lot of times you see innovation efforts within corporations. There's a, a lot of like energy to like stand up innovation efforts, but then they don't necessarily get productized or they don't actually, they don't have demonstrable value. It's, you know, it's a culture thing, but it's like, you know, you've got to have somebody who can help get it through the pipeline and get it out the door, you know, and yeah. I know we'll touch on that here in a minute when we talk about data product managers, but. Yeah, exactly. Same, same sort of thing. You know, we think of products as being developed by R&D people mm -hmm. or something like that, but, you know, you, you have to have a very cross-functional approach. Mm -hmm. um, if you're going to bring a product to market, it's got to involve marketing and sales and supply chain and so on. And so, what a lot of product-focused companies have done have created this overlay of the product manager. Mm -hmm. Those are increasingly popular in software companies too, whose job it is to you know look at the entire process and and make sure that uh, it makes it to market and that it's what the customers want and that it's successful. Yeah, absolutely. Now, so kind of to that point, how should an organization productize its data? And what are maybe just a couple of examples of that that come to mind? You know, typically you're taking some collection of data that you think is useful for a particular purpose and combining it, as I say, with some data, I mean, with some analytics or AI or maybe business intelligence. So it might be something if you're if you're talking about a company that is in the business of data products, I once asked the chief economist, Halvarian of Google, how many data products do you have? And he said, uh, okay, I want you to go to the website for Google and uh, the Wikipedia page for Google, and it lists all of our products. 
and I want you to count them all. And that will be the number of data products that we have <laughs> because everything we do is a data product, basically. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I, I wrote about this a number of years ago and I talked about things like LinkedIn, people you may know, Facebook also has a people you may know. It's some combination of a sort of a social graph with mm -hmm. the social graph data that you have within the organization and then something that does matching. So you can tell people, okay, you probably know this person mm -hmm. since you know this other person and that person knows this person well. So chances are pretty good. We'll sort of make a triangle out yeah. of it and you might want to connect with them because that's going to make the site more valuable. It turns out people you may know was a very successful mm -hmm. offering for LinkedIn Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're all kind of bored with it now, <laughs> but um, for a while it was really quite exciting. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, it might be something as simple as a patient dashboard in a healthcare institution where you can quickly see, you know, what the state of their body is along various dimensions. So it doesn't have to be anything exotic. It's just a set of data and some way of making it meaningful. Hmm. Now, I think to that end, you know, you have put forward or, or, you know, or you have been writing about recently, I should say, the concept of reusable data sets. How does that fit into, you know, this discussion around data products? Like what, how, what are reusable data sets and how do they, what, what part do they play? Well, you, you know, in general, we, I think we've sort of not done terribly well on the data management side. We've kind of focus on earlier stages of the data supply chain, like how do we collect this data? How do we store it and so on? And not enough on consumption. Mm -hmm. So if you care about consumption, you need to kind of package up data sets, collections of data, maybe involving a set of different variables or data elements mm -hmm. and say, okay, all of these are useful for accomplishing this particular purpose. You know, I was talking uh, with someone from AT&T recently, and they were saying, hey, if, you know, if you want to study churn, we've got a set of different churn data sets for different markets. And then we've got uh, the churn model that you can kind of plug into with an API. So if you're, if you're interested in preventing a particular type of customer from leaving us, there is, we're going to make it very easy for you to do that. So the reusable data, I think, goes quite well with the reusable features or if you're if you're talking about machine learning or variables if you're talking about traditional analytics same mm. thing actually but um you know everything you need in order to do this analysis is available and we're going to make it possible for almost anybody to to do this kind of analysis so you know the reusable data sets might involve customers might involve products it mm -hmm. might involve particular regions there are all sorts of combinations, and I think you know, maybe we're going to talk about this later on, but I think it could also involve external data, and probably it should involve external data. Yeah, because I think that, you know, given that data sets train the AIs, and there's like so much emphasis now on training sets and, you know, growing that, it just seems to me that there's an opportunity there to cross-pollinate with other organizations you can get around the data privacy concerns and that sort of thing. And then, you know, maybe there's, there's gotta be some 
interesting ways that organizations can collaborate and help their AIs muscle up. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I mean, just for an example, in banking, everybody's interested in not only how much money of this particular customer do I manage, but what's my share of wallet? Mm -hmm. um, and to do that, you really have to have some sort of collaboration with other banks to say, okay, let's share data to some degree anyway, maybe through a third party. It often is the case through a third party so that you can see, well, you know, you have 20% of their assets, but mm -hmm. these four other institutions have percentages as well. And, you know, might be an opportunity for you to gain some share. Or, you know, there's some data that's just much more likely to be generated external, like weather data, mm -hmm. for example. Weather data is quite useful in, you know, predicting what things you might want to buy. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked with one company where they did those lenses that turn dark in the sunlight, transitions mm -hmm. lenses. And obviously weather plays a big role in that. So if you have a really rainy summer, People mm -hmm. aren't going to buy as many, you know, sunglasses. So weather data is usually supplied by, it was supplied by the National Weather Service, but now, you know, IBM bought a weather company. A number of companies are getting into supplying weather data. AccuWeather does it too. So external data, I think, is generally a little overlooked by many companies. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it's a good idea to uh, apply it when you can. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, just not to get off track, but it's like that, that makes me think of like supply chain implications, you know, for like going to your transition lens, you know, if I'm a transition, if, if that is a, a part of my product portfolio, and I know that it's going to be an exceedingly rainy season, and I don't need to buy X amount of components, I need to buy Y, and I need to adjust my supply chain. And then there's like downstream implications to all of that, you know, so. Um, yeah, a lot of companies now are interested in, you know, not only what things might be going on with their suppliers, but they're trying to look further up the chain and say, well, what, ab what about my supplier's suppliers? And yeah. are there floods where they're producing? Is there political unrest? Maybe something is happening. So my supplier hasn't had a problem yet, but they will. So mm -hmm. you can really anticipate a lot more what's happening. Obviously, we, we should have done better about that during COVID than oh, yeah. we did. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. You live and learn. So um, now you mentioned earlier, you know, when we're talking about data product strategy and you mentioned, you know, the digital natives, you know, Silicon Valley, they're really kind of the leading on this, but that like maybe, I don't know, more traditional is like the right nomenclature here, but, you know, more traditional companies, large companies that are trying to make this shift towards data products. Can you talk about maybe some of the challenges that you found among large companies that are trying to implement you know, a data product strategy? The, the ones that have really embraced it seem to be doing pretty well with it, but probably the biggest complaint is, you know, it's hard to find the right kind of people because data scientists, for the reasons I was discussing earlier, generally are not the best at it because you know they, they tend to be focused on building great models and algorithms. But some you know data scientists might be okay at it if they you know are willing to take this big picture and not have to use their highly analytical skills every every minute of the day. But you know you have to know something about 
analytics and AI. You have to know, understand something about data structures and different types of data. You have to be a good communicator because you're really coordinating across this broad spectrum of cross-functional activities. You have to be knowledgeable about what customers in your industry want because you know producing products that appeal to customers is a, a big part of your success. So it's hard to find people with all of those attributes who are available. There are no, uh, I think I'm working with one university that's starting to create data product managers, but in general, there aren't any even any like programs around that topic. The academic programs that like help. Yeah. Cause I, cause you've articulated this as like a new role, you know, that it's not the data scientist, but it's like somebody who's maybe like you just said, has that, they have that domain expertise around AI and analytics, but then also they have, they're able to wear the hat of a product manager. They understand marketing. They, they understand the, the whole, the big picture of like what it takes to like put something together and all the constituent parts and, and bring it to market. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there was one related role that people talk, have been talking about for a while, mm-hmm. the sort of analytics translator role. And there was, um, I'd written some stuff about this, but never really about, I call them purple people, kind of half red, half blue, half technical, half business oriented. But a McKinsey article in Harvard Business Review, I think, used a new term, the, the analytics translator. Mm-hmm. And a number of companies have experimented with that. But my guess is that data product managers also are capable of translation, and they do a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're value is a lot easier to establish than just translation. So I think it'll ultimately be a more popular role than the translator role was. Hmm. Let me ask you kind of going back a little bit on the idea of da- uh, data privacy. And I know that was obviously a big concern, particularly in 2018 with the, the release of the GDPR and it's, you know, lingering effects, but do you see data privacy concerns creating any significant barriers for the deployment of a, of a data product strategy? And if so, how are those overcome so that value is not lost? I think that, you, you know, you could be yet another thing that you make data product managers responsible for, mm-hmm. that there are, you know, privacy safeguards in place and that you have to have somebody to, to point to when something goes wrong and data product manager would would certainly suffice for that. You know, if you're in healthcare, you you can have an overall person who is responsible for HIPAA compliance, for example, but you really need somebody who's close to the individual applications or use cases, and that's going to be the, the data product managers. So I think it can help more than hurt. I mean, obviously, data privacy can be a difficult thing to address. And I'm not saying it makes the job easier for data product managers, but it does make dealing with data privacy somewhat easier if you have a structure in place for data product management. Hmm. Okay. Circling back to what we were discussing about the, the, the concept of collaborative organizations, can productized data be combined, you know, with other organizations' data to expand its value and 
Have you seen any particularly interesting examples of that? Yeah, well, a lot of companies now are trying to look at, <laughs> it may violate some people's idea of, of data privacy, but they're trying to sort of track their customers across a variety of different platforms. You know, their internal platforms, but also social media and loyalty programs and so on. And so you have a class of companies emerging that do that. I mean, we, we always had, you know, third-party data brokers, but now they are working across channels in many cases. And if you want to get a sense of, uh, is this person who appeared on your website somebody who has bought a lot from other companies in the industry in the past or whatever, you're mm -hmm. only going to get that through a third-party provider. So that'd be one example. And I, you know, I think the number of potential external data suppliers is really endless. Location data, health data, and, you know, I think driving data, a lot, you know, a lot of the um, automobile companies now have connected vehicle data. There's going to be even more of that in the past as cars become um, more electric and autonomous and so on. So there are going to be fantastic opportunities as long as you don't annoy your customers too much to take advantage of all that external data that's available. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I had spoken years before with, he was the chief digital officer for a European car manufacturer. And I think one of the things they were trying to do is get to like a, this kind of personalized digital memory. So like basically you create this profile as a driver and then whenever you like rented a car, you know, you're traveling and wherever you rented a car, like you had a key fob or something, it would, regardless of where you were in the world, if you rented one of their electric and autonomous vehicles, it would remember like your Netflix, you know, preferences and logins and like all your, your social media and like everything. So it like extended beyond just like memory of, well, this is like how you like your seat, you know, and the ergonomics and all that kind of thing to like where it was like your whole digital life followed you in your whatever vehicle. And it wasn't just your vehicle, but like any vehicle that you rented from them across the world, which, you know, was interesting, but it was kind of like, wow, that's, um, again, data privacy. You know, it's like a, a, that might, that might be a head scratcher for some people, but. Yeah. You know, I wrote an article recently. I, I don't, it hasn't been published yet. I don't think it's in one of these management journals with a long lead time, but it's on AI and personalization. Mm -hmm. And so I reviewed some of the literature on what consumers think about personalization. And it turns out they're very schizophrenic about it. They want it if it can, you know, save them a lot of money or save them a lot of time or bring them free goods or discounted goods or whatever. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, they don't want to give up their data in order to make it possible. Yeah. So it's a little hard to know sort of where the where the line is. But I do think that having your customer's permission is increasingly important and providing some sort of value exchange. Okay, I'm going to use your data, but I'm going to give you something valuable in exchange 
for it. I, you know, I, I use Gmail as my email client. I know they sort of look at my data on occasion. It's never really bothered me all that much. Although now I notice there's some things that I get that I can't declare spam. They yeah. just keep coming day after day. So maybe I'll, at some point I'll tire of it, but for a number of years, it's mm -hmm. been a good value exchange for me. And I still, I still don't get very well personalized offers from from them because of it. Well, and I've I've heard that I think there's like there's a desire to see like personal data get monetized so that people can make it's like okay if you're going to use my data then what's in it for me like you're saying and, yeah. and you know so monetized being the owner of that data is the individual from whence it came mm -hmm. and they get some money. Unfortunately, a lot of people, a lot of companies, when they talk about monetization, it's how do we make money off our yeah. customers' data. And that, I think, is not really ultimately going to succeed. And in fact, I even tell companies, don't use that term monetization. If and if your customers hear it, unless it's providing money for them, which is yeah. hardly ever the case, um, they're going to be annoyed. Yeah, but I, I do think there are data advocates out there, and I've talked to some you know, commentators that that think that that might be coming where it's not the monetization goes back to the person. So it's like, I recoup, I get monetized for you Acme incorporated using my data, you know? So, yeah. Tim Berners Lee, the inventor of the web is working on some products that would allow that Sandy Pentland at MIT, a friend of mine has argued for that. Um, mm -hmm. There's a new venture by Frank McCourt who, used to own the LA Dodgers called Project Liberty, where they're trying to create that. But it's it's kind of a hard road to hoe. It's mm -hmm. a lot of change necessary in how the internet and the web works to make these things happen. And I, I hope it does. I think we need some changes, but I don't see it happening quickly. Well, yeah. And there's going to probably be countervailing forces that like try to get around that. But, you know, so we shall see. Well, um, Tom, I do have a couple of questions that have been submitted from our audience. Pretty fascinating, just kind of like a little bit off topic from data products, but they are, you know, these are questions around AI and data sets and data science. So if you're game, I'd like to just ask you a couple and get your sure. take on this. So uh, the first one comes from Dr. Jen Bloom of Germany, and she writes, are there any current IT trends that you view as fads? Uh, such as, you know, trends that you think are getting a lot of hype, but won't necessarily enact meaningful change. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I guess I'd put the metaverse in that category. And I'm not really, I was skeptical about it all along, not just because Meta and Facebook have fallen upon hard times recently. Mm -hmm. I just didn't really think that the technology was yet up to the task and of, you know, making a highly engaging visual experience for mm -hmm. consumers. And I guess I, I was also a little bit skeptical about Web3 and cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. You know, I do think that there's, it will, it and the blockchain will play some role in the future. But, you know, it's one of the things that's amazing to me is this is supposed to be such a, an appealing technology because your assets are secured on the blockchain, yet mm -hmm. everybody gets hacked. <laughs> you know, I just don't quite get 
how that works. Clearly a bit of a contradiction there. And so I think that the um, recent over the last few days vanishing of this very large and once successful crypto exchange FTX is going to put another short-term nail in the coffin of Web3. I don't think we're going to talk about it nearly as much as we have over the last couple of years. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, there's just been, there's been a lot of talk about blockchain and, and cryptocurrencies for the last several years, but it just hasn't replaced currency as we know it. Tales of the death of the dollar are greatly yeah. exaggerated. Yeah, so we'll see. If it has replaced your currency, then you have a lot less currency than you had a few months ago. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so our next question comes from Noah Pekinis of London, and he writes, what is the most eye-opening realization about AI today? Well, this turns out to be a very good question, Noah, because today I and a co-author from Deloitte published an article in Harvard Business Review about what I think is the most interesting thing happening in AI today. It's called How Generative AI is Changing Creative Work. And it's about these, I don't know, some people call them large language models, although now they're much more, they're for much more than language. Some people call them foundation models. I think generative AI is, to me, the best term. But, you know, they can create, they can be trained on a wide variety of content types, Mm -hmm. and they can generate in a very impressive way another wide variety of content types. So, you know, you can train it on emails, you can train it on websites, you can train it on images, et cetera, and it will produce with only a short prompt, quite impressive paragraph or produce an image or produce a video or produce a blog post or, you know, for us content creators, it's a little scary to Hmm. see how this might evolve over time. Well, my next question comes from Hamid Adib of Connecticut, and Hamid writes, what is the optimum solution to keep bias out of AI and machine learning? Well, that's a very good question. It is a a very challenging issue because bias results from data, the data we use to train these models, data only comes from the past. The past typically involved human decision-making about, you know, who to hire or who to give a loan to or whatever, Mm -hmm. and humans are very biased. Um, So it's a big issue. Sometimes we think that that bias is okay. Like, for example, if I were to apply today for a long-term care insurance policy, mine would be less expensive than my wife's. And one could argue that's the case of gender bias Mm -hmm. because we men tend to live shorter lives than women do. Is that bias or is it just the way the world works? So it's a complex issue. I think really there are companies that have produced software that will identify potential types of bias, you know, which groups may suffer as a result of applying or deploying this particular model. 
it's sometimes hard to know beforehand mm -hmm. before you have any sort of outputs or predictions just because the, the models that are increasingly used to make these predictions aren't very transparent. You know, they're very, they may have hundreds or thousands of different variables or features and not be very interpretable, even by a data scientist. So mm -hmm. I think we're making slow progress and you can at least look at, okay, which features tend to be the most influential in these models, but it's still a, in part, at least a human activity to say, okay, who suffers from, from the use of this particular model and can we live with that? Can our customers live with that? Is this something that is a, an acceptable form of bias that, you know, we've been using for decades, like the insurance one I mentioned? Hmm. Well, this last question comes to us from Ian Sharp of Sydney, Australia. And I think it ties to the question Hamid just asked is, what safeguards should organizations put in place as part of machine intelligence design to help ensure appropriate and legally defensible decision outputs by the AI? Yeah, well, I'm very interested in that. And I have a new book coming out in January called All In on AI, where I talk about companies that are really aggressive in their use of AI. Mm -hmm. And most of them, I would say, you know, they say, you know, we care a lot about ethical AI, AI fairness, et cetera, responsible AI. But they, they've created policies, but they haven't really, the rubber hasn't really hit the road yet uh, in terms of day-to-day -day governance. But I do talk about Unilever mm -hmm. in the book, and they now, for every use case that somebody wants to develop, if you want any sort of corporate resources at all, or really, if you want to even introduce this into the marketplace, you have to send them the description of what the use case is going to be about. And they they don't evaluate it internally. They have an external partner called Holistic AI, mm -hmm. which looks at it both you know, with human eyes and also with various automated sorts of assessment tools to say, is this likely to be biased? Is it transparent? Is it likely to be effective? I mean, some of the proposals that come in are not likely to work very well. You know, some people think that AI can do more than it really can. So yeah. they might come back and say, well, it's, it would be fine ethically. It's just not going to work very well. And, and I think just as we do that for financial performance in public companies anyway, we'll probably end up having external auditors. You know, my friends in Deloitte and the other big four companies say, well, we can't really audit it yet because there are no government standards. Yeah. But we're moving in that direction. And, you know, Europe is, has an AI act that's not implemented fully yet. But I think there will be progress in that regard. And maybe we'll have official criteria by which companies will be able to audit the performance of their AI use cases. That's interesting. And I, I don't think we don't have time to unpack it today, but I, I think that opens up all kinds of freedom of speech and, uh, you know, all kinds of different and interesting discussions, you know, like who's bias are we talking about? Like who gets to decide what is 
who are the arbiters of what is true and ethical? Oh, no, we all agree on what's truth in this society, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, and, uh, you know, those generative AI systems uh, are also going to be very controversial in terms of, one, they'll be able to generate deep fakes, I think, quite easily. And two, yeah. you know, who owns the intellectual property? There's already a lawsuit against one of the tools that Microsoft has introduced that generates code mm. um, because it scrapes existing code in order to come up with automated code generation. And so this is the GitHub business unit. They have a tool called Copilot and they've already been sued, even though it's just introduced to the marketplace a month or two ago. That's interesting. I, I don't know why, but that reminds me of like record sampling and like how that yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the late 80s, early 90s with groups like the Beastie Boys. And suddenly it was like, well, whose music is it? But anyway. Yeah, same idea. Well, Tom, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating discussion. And, uh, you know, congratulations on the the new books and also, you know, obviously all the material that you're putting out this fall. So data product strategy, fascinating data product manager. So kids, get your resumes together, you know, and... Um, you know, if the, any universities are out there listening, it sounds like we have a new uh, potential new uh, job market to, uh, to train up for. So I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely.